0: A couple of important Thanksgiving stories I need to share. A man in Chicago calls his son in New York before Thanksgiving Day and says, I hate to ruin your day, but I have to tell you that your mother and I are divorcing. 45 years of misery is enough. Pop, what are you talking about? The son screams. Well, we can't stand the sight of each other anymore, the father says. We're sick of each other, and I'm sick of talking about this, so you call your sister in Dallas. And you tell her. Frantic, the son calls his sister, who explodes on the phone. Like heck they're divorcing. I'll take care of this. She calls Chicago immediately and screams at her father, you are not getting divorced. Don't do a single thing until I get there. I'm calling my brother back. We'll both be there tomorrow. Until then, don't do a thing. Do you hear me? And she hangs up. The old man hangs up his phone and turns to his wife. Okay, they're coming for Thanksgiving and they're paying their way. <laughs> A lady was picking through the frozen turkeys at the grocery store but couldn't find one big enough for her family. She asked the stock boy, Do these turkeys get any bigger? The stock boy looked at her with concern. No, ma'am, they're dead. <laughs> and some sad news. Today, it seems that Big Bird didn't have the best Thanksgiving. In fact, it was downright awful. (laughs) That's Big Bird there on the table, in case you guys didn't get that. That's my dark sense of humor. Okay. That's my favorite one out of all of them. All right. So, like my dad said, if you've been reading along with us in the story, we're in chapter 13. I love this title, The King Who Had It All. And boy is that an understatement. And the first thing that stands out to me as I read, as I reread the story of Solomon, is thinking about his grandfather, Jesse, you know, the father of David. Jesse was just a very humble shepherd. And apparently not even a very good one because we learn from Jesse's sons that he possessed quote, "those few sheep in the wilderness." Shepherds try to get their sheep to get married and have children and have more sheep. So apparently all, all they had was just a few sheep. And normally a poor shepherd passes on his meager possessions to his sons, and they continue that life. Not so with Jesse, right? His grandson, Solomon, became the richest, wisest, and most famous man on the face of the earth. Maybe we could get the joke down. Or we can just leave it up for the whole sermon. It's okay. Yeah, the whole, the, he became the greatest man on the face of the earth. The splendor of King Solomon's reign was and is legendary. His wisdom unsurpassed until the time of Christ, right? Never again during his reign, never again expect, past his reign was Israel so large and so blessed with peace. His rule marks the territorial high tide Israel's history. Even today, Israel is smaller than it was during Solomon's reign. And perhaps only today is Israel finally more wealthy and more strong than it was during Solomon's day some 3,000 years ago. <coughs> Find a figure in the Old Testament with more favor than Solomon. I challenge you. I don't think you'll be able to do it. He was chosen by God. First Chronicle tells us chosen by God to succeed his father David, even though he wasn't the oldest son. He was also, you remember, the son of Bathsheba, who David shouldn't have been more than just a friendly neighbor to her. And so you see God's grace there, that the Lord chose that man, the son of that relationship, to be the king. And Solomon was given a very special task by his father and by God himself, to build a temple worthy of the name of the Lord. Think of this. When you think about Solomon's life, all the other kings of Israel and Judah, when they heard a word from the Lord, how did they get the word? A prophet, right, would come and give them that word. You have your Samuels, you have your Isaiahs, Nathan the prophet, um, Elijah. Sometimes they didn't want to hear the word, right? Elijah would give them words and they would say, you enemy of Israel. But Solomon was different Remember, favor. God spoke directly to Solomon three times in dreams. And at the dedication of Solomon's temple, the Lord actually appeared visibly. His presence appeared visibly as a thick cloud which filled the building. It was so thick that the priests had to leave. They couldn't even do their work because the the cloud was so thick. That was the favor that was on Solomon. And, uh, you know, he didn't necessarily create all that favor he was inheriting favor from his father david david had a promise because of his heart from the lord a promise from the lord your line will rule israel forever so long as you remain true to me david on his deathbed charged solomon remain true son and both times god appeared to him the first two times the lord repeated that charge don't throw all this away By holding me in contempt. While David was forced to be a fighting man most of his life, Solomon, remember, favor. He enjoyed peace on all sides his entire reign. Instead of waging war, he signed treaties and made alliances with the great nations around him. And Israel's traditional enemies like Moab, Philistia, Edom, they became subject to Solomon and paid him tribute. You remember in Judges when the Israelites couldn't even sharpen their plows because they didn't have any blacksmiths. The Philistines wouldn't let them have blacksmiths because they were afraid a blacksmith could create swords and weapons. And so they had to take their plows to Philistia to get them sharpened. Now the Philistines are paying them tribute. You see the reversal in that relationship. Solomon forged such profitable trade deals and financed such successful commercial fleets that it was said his hands flowed with silver. Indeed, Israel was so glutted with so much silver during Solomon's day that it says silver became of little value. Of course, precious metals have to be rare to have value. That's part of what makes them precious. So think about that. They had so much silver that it ceased to have value. Solomon had so much gold, he was able to overlay the entire interior of the Holy of Holies in the temple and everything in it with gold. The weight of Gold in Solomon's temple in today's money is valued at $50 billion. Nowadays we have industrial mining, but in those days $50 billion in gold was a staggering sum. The Bible says he was the richest man alive. He was so wise that even kings and queens traveled from the the ends of the earth to hear him and to give him gifts. He wrote the Proverbs, but he could also discourse on subjects today that we would consider to be science. Back then, they didn't divide theology and philosophy from science. Truth was truth. So Solomon could, one minute, be giving a judgment in court that would it says that his people were so amazed at his justice that they held him in awe. And then he would hitch up his royal robes and step outside and he could then teach on birds. It says he taught on animals and plants and on all sorts of natural things. So he was brilliant scientifically. If he had lived today... He'd have dozens of best-selling books and millions of podcast subscribers, right? All of us would claim to have read the books. Actually, we probably would read the investment book and the relationship book. We would claim to have read the health and fitness book. (laughs) Yep, I got his book right next to my treadmill. I'm doing the Queen of Sheba diet. Right after the holidays, I mean. So... The heyday for Israel, the zenith of their worldly prestige and power. However, that his reign marks the zenith is not necessarily a compliment. Because while Solomon's reign was gilded with favor, he began to sow the seeds of Israel's destruction and his own early death. That's right, the wisest king behaved like a fool, as we shall see. I want to say this, though. When I picture the young David sitting out with the sheep on a starry night, plucking his harp and singing praises to his creator, and then I consider the young Solomon a generation later, in all his splendor, pomp, power, and yes, wisdom, I believe David was the richer. I might be biased because I was named after him. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. I love the Proverbs. When I hear news stories, often written with a sneer in the pages. You can see the sneer of the journalist that some judge has ordered a a young man who's gotten in trouble with the law to read the Proverbs through in lieu of a little jail time. I actually rejoice because the Proverbs will save a fool from the snares of death and self-destruction. But that kind of wisdom doesn't encompass everything there is to our faith. What I don't see specifically in Proverbs is zeal for relationship with the Lord. Uh, You can infer it if you want to, but it's not obvious. King David, by contrast, got so excited in the presence of the Lord that he lost all thought of even his own dignity and danced before the Lord, shouting and praising in public in his undergarments. In the story, the narrator makes it clear through the tone that uh, he was right to do that. Even though it's a little funny, it shows his heart. When we look at how Solomon's life turned out, it seems clear if he had a little less gold and a little more dancing in his boxers, he would have been better off. <laughs> Listen to Solomon himself reflect on his own life as an older man. This is from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 4. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. and all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. That doesn't sound too good. The first hint that I see that something was wrong comes very early in the story when he married Pharaoh's daughter. Maybe not the best idea. Does she love the Lord? No. But Pharaoh had worldly wealth and power. Doesn't matter. Here's what Moses ordered the people before they entered the promised land. Deuteronomy 7. When your Lord God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you this is what you are to do to them break down their altars, smash their sacred stones cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols in fire for you are a people holy to the Lord your God the second hint I see even amidst the glory cloud and. His beautiful prayer at the dedication of the temple is this. From the end of chapter six, it says he has spent seven years building the temple. Now, why is that significant? That seems like he really put a lot into building. That's seven years. That's a lot of time, a lot of money. But look at the very next verses, the first verse of the next chapter, chapter seven. It took Solomon thirteen years, however, to complete the destruction. The destruction to complete the construction of his palace. And I like how the author of Kings put that however in there. It took Solomon 13 years, however, to complete the construction of his palace. He's saying, compare that to the temple. Which was his priority? Seven years for God's house, 13 years for his own house. Now, we don't know what was in his heart, but that seems significant to me. It reveals something about where his priorities lay. And finally, there's this from 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women, besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He, made seven, he had 700 wives of royal birth, Think about that. It's kind of one of those jaw-dropping statements in the Bible. 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord, as the heart of his father David had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Think about that. It says he followed. He followed. This doesn't even say he allowed his wives to follow, which would have been bad enough. He himself followed. Verse 6, So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. Ashtoreth worship involved ritual public fornication, and Molech worship involved human sacrifice. In case you were wondering how evil this is and why it says detestable. I'm not saying he personally did those things. It doesn't say that, but that's what this idol- idolatry is known to have involved. Verse 7 On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of, your, out of the hand of your son, Yet, yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but I will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant. for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. He blew it. Like Esau, he had it all and threw it away. Both David and Solomon did have one thing in common. They were led astray by forbidden women. But there's a key difference. David repented. Remember when Nathan the prophet, confronted David about that, and as my mother taught so well. He had the good sense to say, I have sinned against the Lord. Is that me? Okay. I have sinned against the Lord. And he repented, and he found restoration and grace, because God is always willing to draw us back, isn't he? But now we have Solomon, confronted not by a prophet, but by God himself. And the Lord tells him, notice this, since this is your attitude. Here we don't have, like David, a temporary lust of the flesh from which he could simply repent. For Solomon, this has has become a lifestyle, an attitude. It says his heart had turned away from the Lord, something we never hear of David. Even after this warning, apparently Solomon didn't repent, because we learn in 2 Kings that Solomon left these high places intact, even after God gave him that final message. They weren't finally destroyed until 350 years later, when King Josiah did the right thing and had them destroyed. Here's how Solomon wraps up Ecclesiastes, again, reflecting on his life. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Wise words, right? But he didn't listen. The high places and the idols remained. And so he died at 60. Unlike his father who lived to 70. When God had promised Solomon he would have a long life if he would only obey. All the wisdom in the world and all the wealth too are of no use to us if we have a heart that's far from the Lord. And his son Rehoboam saw the kingdom divided. He lost Israel. He only retained Judah in fulfillment of the word. And his descendants would have to see with their own eyes all that gold stripped from the walls of the temple. And all those articles carried off to Egypt and Babylon. And ultimately, the temple itself was burned in the flames. At that time, there were idols even in the Holy of Holies. And that's what he passed on to his descendants. Because he let his heart go astray. I want to talk to you today about guarding your heart. A wise man once said this, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Who said that? Solomon, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Wise words. Two kings took up quill and parchment and poured out their hearts in ink. One said this, I love this. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs for you, O Lord. And the other said this. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. What would pour out from your heart if you could turn it over like an ink bottle onto paper? What would pour out? Since we know from a wise man who didn't listen to his own words... That keeping our hearts right with God is the most important thing we can do. It might be wise to consider, what is the state of our hearts? And how can we guard our hearts? Psalm 100 tells us, our hearts draw near to the Lord in this way. It says, if God were a dwelling place, then we would enter the gates with thanksgiving, right? Beyond the gates are the courts. It says, we enter the courts through praise. A thankful heart, that one little thing will make your life a joy to live. You will find your heart drawing near to God of its own accord. Thankfulness, the psalmist tells us, is a gate. When it comes to a gate, either you're in or out. I guess you could stand there halfway, but people don't really do that. Either you're in or out. Everyone who isn't thankful is on the outside looking in wishing they were in those courts of the Lord, wishing they were near him and sharing in their master's happiness. Why can't I be happy too? Why can't I have the joy of the Lord? Try a little thankfulness. Make a lifestyle of it. And you always will be within that crucial gate that separates the haves from the have-nots. Those who have the joy of thankfulness and those who have not. Who wants to be in those gates and those courts? I know, I do. You know, every other temple on the earth in Solomon's day housed, what? The idol of the God, right? Not so Solomon's temple. Following God's instructions as recorded by Moses, the chief artifact was the Ark of the Covenant. At the heart of the Holy of Holies. And inside the Ark, God had ordered a few items to be contained. One, the tablets bearing the Ten Commandments. Two, a jar containing some manna the miraculous provision. And three, Aaron's staff, which had budded miraculously, showing Aaron as the chosen line for the priesthood. So what was precious to God here? Not an idol of himself. His words, the Ten Commandments, his commands recorded on the tablets, and two examples of his miraculous provision. His love and his faithfulness was shown through his miraculous provision, and He wanted them to remember, to think about it, to savor it. Yes, God is with us. The same God who has been good and great in my past and the past of my people will help me now with my current problem. That's what he's communicating to his people by what he told them to put in the ark. This remembrance conditions our hearts to be thankful. How can I be thankful? Remember what God has done. He shows that he has been loving to you when you think about what he's done. And it not only allows you to be thankful, but it allows you to be trusting. And that's very important. So make a lifestyle, but it it takes being deliberate, doesn't it? It's easy to go through your life and not be deliberate about that. I know I can find myself thinking, I'm being really negative right now. (laughs) (laughs) I need to be thankful. I I need to focus on the good. We can get into a little bit of a rut, can't we? So it does take being deliberate. And that's why he told him to put those two things in the ark, the budding staff and the manna. Remember what I've done. And if we are now God's temple, as the New Testament teaches, then at the heart of our Holy of Holies, we ought to have a few items of remembrance, memories of what he's done for us, to teach us to be thankful. And this is a very powerful tool to condition our hearts and to guard our hearts. As Solomon says, the most important thing You know when you get a new baseball glove? Anyone here ever gotten a new baseball glove? It's been a while for me, okay? One person in the whole room. All right, that's okay. When you get a new baseball, okay, two people. When you get a new baseball glove, it's really stiff and rigid, and it's not very good for catching. So you have to condition it. And there's all sorts of things you can do. You can use oil. You can use hot water, apparently, I saw on Google. But um, the way we would do it as a kid is you just throw the ball and catch it. And you just work it. You can even stand there and punch it if you want to. And after a while, it'll fit your hand like a right? That's where that phrase comes from. And so this is what we're doing when we remember what he's done. We're conditioning our hearts. It starts out rigid. starts out unfamiliar. But pretty soon, it just becomes a part of you. Now, let's look at a life-changing difference between Solomon and his father. I'm sorry I'm being so hard on Solomon because I want to like him. Now David spent time with God, right? He spent time with his God-fearing wives, according to God's command, he hung out with his 30 mighty men. Who heart, they were heartened by David's example of courage, and he was heartened by their examples of courage. So iron sharpens iron. And he surrounded himself with godly officials, such as Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet and so on. He had a whole troop of paid worshipers. How would you like to be a, paid just to worship all day? That'd be good. When a people are led by those who surround themselves with godly officials, believing advisors, that people will be blessed. You know, David did have one or two bad eggs in his court. Joab, who he probably should have gotten rid of earlier. But he did pretty good. Now, we don't hear much about Solomon's devotional life, by contrast. Nor of godly officials or mighty men. The people he, aspere- he appears to have spent the most time with were his foreign wives. Yeah. Who worshipped other gods. It's not that they were foreign that was bad. It was that they worshipped other gods, right? These were abominable gods, the Bible says, with detestable practices. And no doubt, he fell by degrees after long exposure into following those gods himself. I doubt he made that decision in one day. It didn't come to fruition, the text tells it, until near the end of his life. It took a long time for the enemy to undo the legacy he had inherited from his father. But in the end, he was overcome and worn down, and he fell. Because of the company he kept. A wise man said this once. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Who said that? Solomon, Proverbs 13. You know, Lewis Carroll, author of Alice in Wonderland, has Alice say this, I often give myself very good advice, but I very seldom follow it. (laughs) Poor Solomon. All the wisdom in the world won't help even a little bit if you don't listen to yourself. Spend too much time with the world become like the world. Spend time with Jesus, become like Jesus. We're always moving in one direction or another. Now Jesus loved sinners and ate with them. He spent time with them. So I'm not saying don't spend time with sinners, but he made time for his disciples too, and he found time alone time with God. So yes, love your unbelieving friends and do spend time with them, but let it be as a ministry, in addition to a friendship, always with the ultimate goal of their salvation in mind, You don't have to tell them it's a ministry until it's too late and they've already got saved. (laughs) If we love them, we can't be indifferent to their ultimate destiny if they never find Christ. And while you're doing that, be sure to be refreshed by plenty of time with God and lots of time with believers, too, because you become like who you spend time with. I guess Solomon, my guess is that he found those religious practices detestable at first. Ritual, public fornication, human sacrifice. Maybe all he personally witnessed was the incense burning. I don't know. But whatever the case, he, you know, his heart clung to his wives more than his heart clung to the Lord. And that was the problem. So maybe at first he thought, oh, I'll love my wives, but I'll hate their idolatry. But over time, they wore him down and he fell. So the world, as you spend time with the world, makes the abominable start to feel normal. My friends, there's a strategy of wearing you down in our popular culture. It's in every TV show, most movies, 99% of our news media. I remember my history professor, a believer, George Fox. This was a good 20 years ago now. He said, our culture is awash in filth. I remember thinking, oh, come on, that's a bit of an exaggeration. And that was uh, then. Now I think he was right, <laughs> looking back. And I think it's even worse now. So you should be very careful. We should all be very careful what we allow to stream into our house. Doubly so if you have children in the house. All right. So what else did Solomon bring into the temple besides Aaron's staff and the the manna? There was one other thing. Do you remember? He brought in inside the Ark of the Covenant the tablets that had the Ten Commandments. Why did God want that? What's the point of chiseling out the Ten Commandments on stone and then tucking them away where nobody can see them? Inside the Ark. But this was part of God's message to his people. He was saying, revere my word. Remember what I've done for you? Revere my word. And the word of God is at the heart of his revelation to us. And it's always accompanied by miracles. Moses got the word of God on the Ten Commandments. After fasting, it says, 40 days from food and water. So you know that that that's a miracle, right? I can't even go 40 minutes without drinking something. So he brought that into the temple and it says fire fell from heaven and consumed the sacrifice right in front of everybody. So was that for God's benefit? No. He was communicating something to his people. He was saying, this is my word. It's important. When the word of the Lord came to King David, what did he do? There was a great moment where he received a word that he was going to be uh, the one who, his, his son would be the one who would build the temple. But the Lord said, you will always have a a descendant on the throne of Israel. As long as your descendants obey me. And David's reaction was this. How great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you. And there is no God but you. He praised God. He basically went on. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But he was just rapturous. He cherished God's word. In fact, it tells us that he had two chances to kill Saul early on. When Saul was trying to kill him. Really good chances. One time Saul was in a dark cave and David happened to be hiding in there and Saul didn't know. David's like right here and it's dark and David could have killed him. But he revered the word of the Lord. God had chosen Saul at that time and so he didn't kill him even though he could have. Here was a man who reverenced God's word. But it says that God talked to Solomon on two separate occasions and urged him not to turn to foreign gods. And unlike his father David, he basically just shrugged it off. Watch over your heart by cherishing the word of God and the words of God spoken over your life. We should be like David who just went into praise when he heard God's word over him and not be like Solomon who, you know, I don't know what exactly he did, but he didn't respond to it. I want to tell you quickly a dream I had before I wrap this up. This is a real dream that I had a few few years ago. Uh, I walked into a treasure room full of articles of gold. It was basically like a Indiana Jones type dream. There's just all this gold everywhere, gold coins on the floor, gold walls, gold chests, different sizes. They were all bejeweled. Some of them were more like containers, like coffers. Some of them were chests, boxes, treasure chests, and so on. And I walked in and looked at everything, and obviously it's like, wow, look at all this. But then it was like, wait a minute, they're all locked, and I don't have the key. How do I get, how do I find the key? I remember saying in my dream, I don't know how to find the key. And then, Immediately, I saw there, on a golden table, there was this key sitting there. It was gold, of course, and it was, there was like a green jewel in it. And in my dream, I was like, yes, I found the key! And I was so excited because I knew I would get to open up all these treasures. And I woke up, and I was a bit disappointed, like, oh, that didn't really happen. Darn, <laughs> I wanted those treasures. So I asked the Lord, okay, what was the key? And I knew right away that this was obviously a spiritual dream, and I felt that it was... To believe. Believe the word and believe the words that I have received. That have been spoken over my life. And many of us have have had prophetic words spoken over our lives. But even if we haven't, we have the Bible. The word of God. And he wants us to treasure it. Treasure it. This is how you keep your heart right with God. Treasure the words that you've read. Treasure the words that he's spoken over you. Revere them like David. And the Lord will keep your heart right with him. And it's the way to be blessed. It's the way to avoid the pitfalls that Solomon ran into. So I just want to pray for this group right now as we wrap this up. So if, you would, if you're willing, close your eyes and be in a receptive mode. Jesus, for everyone here, we declare we will keep our hearts guarded for you. We will have hearts that grow toward you, not grow away from you with each passing day. We will finish well in this life. We will be like David. We will have hearts that are after your own heart. In Jesus' name. So we pray, let us reverence your word. Let us cherish and remember the good things you've done. And let us be thankful. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody.